Well, good afternoon, everyone. I'm so pleased to be talking to Janice Hallett and her new book, The Christmas Appeal, is the subject. And I want to apologize to all of you who are waiting. I completely forgot that England goes off daylight savings time mid-October, and we are still on it this week. So I gave Janice the wrong time for the Zoom. I'm so accustomed to the eight-hour break and not the seven-hour break. You know, Janice, it would be just better if we all got over daylight savings time and just went back to the real world. Oh, wouldn't it be so much simpler? Yes, it really <laughs> would. And Arizona's bizarre because, see, we, do, we don't do daylight savings time, which means that part of the year we have to tell everybody a specific daylight time because otherwise they don't understand it. Anyway, my apologies to everybody, and I'm really happy to see Janice. I've had the pleasure of talking to her for three books so far, The Appeal, The Twyford Code, and The Mysterious Case of the Alperton Angel. And we're going to talk again in January, but that, I think, will be a reprise of Alperton, won't it? Yeah, well, the, Alperton, um, the Mysterious Case of the Alperton Angels launches in America in this coming January, whereas right. it launched in the UK last January. Right, and, so um, it's, there's a year lag there. So I get to talk to Janice twice every year, which is amazing. <laughs> and she does have a new book coming out in 2024 called The Examiner, about which I know nothing. What is it? Oh, The Examiner. The Examiner is um, it's a, a murder mystery set uh, in a university. And we are with an examiner who is reading the coursework and exam papers for a particular master's degree. And he thinks that in the course of that year, one of the students was killed and the rest of the course and the tutor are covering it up, but he's not sure. So he asks us as the reader to read it to and find out what happened. Oh. That's all I can say at the moment. No, I understand totally. <laughs> For those of you who remember Colin Dexter, Colin Dexter was actually not a Don at Oxford. He was an examiner, which many people don't realize. Um, and when he wrote Inspector Morse, of course, he was writing about the Oxford Constabulary and mysteries that took place at Oxford. But he was in the examiner's office, which is, um, they have a different system than we do. Um, and so we have to allow for that. But, but Janice, your challenge now that you started out with the appeal is to find an interesting new narrative structure for every book, isn't it? Well, it might feel that way, but you know, that's what I like doing. I like doing something completely different every time. That's what, what really motivates me and makes me feel excited and full of joy when I set out to write each new book, which, I mean, having said that, I did return to a particular form of narrative for the Christmas Appeal. I have gone back to the same um, format of my first book, which was a, a strange experience because while I am motivated by the, the, you know, the new, the different, as soon as I found myself back with those characters in Lockwood again with the fairway players, I was off. It was like being among friends again. It was like coming home. It was really weird. And I, I could see why uh, a lot of novelists do set their novels in the same place with the same characters because you become like family although it may sound no it doesn't sound odd at all and i understand it too but um you know in order for you to use different narrative strategies you have to keep coming up with different forms of communication so it can be emails um it can be whatsapp it can be um what was it in the twyford code it was something it interesting 
transcriptions, automatic transcriptions of audio files. I'm quite lucky, really, because even even though I do like to look for these new formats, the modern world and the, the sort of technology in the modern world is moving so fast. There's new ones coming all the time. When I started the appeal, the WhatsApps and short texts weren't really a thing. They've they've really come up in the last five years. So yeah, I mean, hopefully technology will move forward even more. And in the next two or three years, there'll be different structures for me to mine. Well, you know, actually the storytelling form in the appeal and in the Christmas appeal is like the oldest storytelling form in the English novel because Samuel Richardson wrote a book. I think it was Clarissa. I can't remember. He wrote two books and I confused the titles, but no, it was Pamela. Sorry. Pamela, um, and I think it published in 1749, and to solve all those questions about point of view, who's talking, who's telling us the story, how does it progress, what is the pacing, he wrote it in letters so that the entire story is told by people exchanging letters, which people used to do before we had technology. So really, you're using the same structure as Richardson, but you're using technology instead of the post. Oh, do you know, it makes me feel warm inside that I'm compared to such a an austere um, novelist there. Uh, <laughs> so thank you very much. Uh, but yeah, yeah, it's essentially the same. I mean, it's an epistolary novel, people writing to is. each other. Yep, yeah. actually, Jane Austen used it too, you know, in her juvenilia, she wrote a book called Lady Susan. And she she did exactly the same thing. The story was told in an exchange of letters. Um, I have seen Meg Cabot did a pioneering version a long time back, I think, with emails. And what was fun uh, was that she changed the salutation of the email. Um, and that was part of the part of the whole storytelling thing was, you know, the changes of names and all kinds yeah. of things. Um, I don't know, if you've moved to TikTok, you're gonna have <laughs> to have like a visual book. And I'm not sure. Yeah. yeah. Touch the yeah, I have <laughs> dipped my toe in TikTok. I, I feel a little bit old for it. I think that's for young people to communicate. I certainly um, hope so, because I don't plan to do it, but there we <laughs> are. Anyway, um, so the appeal, which became an instant bestseller, proving that people were willing to um, kind of push, you know, the way they read, um, was set in a place called Lower Lockwood. And um, the fairway players were kind of the, community within that and here they are back so what is that you just say and it's crucial that jack and the beanstalk is the christmas play or the british call it pantomime panto for short that the right. lock that the fairway players fairway sorry are going that to was. um put on so set us up set you up well yes the um fairway players are well, let, let me first take us back to um, the events of the appeal, because we've now moved on uh, four years since since those events. So we've moved on four years. I mean, it's kind it's behind the characters, what happened there, although they occasionally refer to it. But you can definitely read this book if you've not read the appeal yet. It's, you know, that we have moved on. And the area has changed. The area where it was set was a very, very small town, but that's changed in the four years. There's been a couple of housing estates built. There's been a, an estate of very big houses for very well-to-do people. And we've also had um, an estate of social housing built as well. So the Fairway players are very keen to get new members because they always need new blood to take part in their plays. But at the same time, some of them aren't that keen on having members from the social housing. They would much rather 
attract the well-to-do people from the larger housing estate. So we have this um, conflict already there. And not only that, we also have the conflict of leadership because while the um, fairway players were, were led by a particular family in the first book, they're not anymore. They're, you know, the, um, the committee now elects leaders and the current leadership is Sarah Jane and Kevin MacDonald. Uh, they've been um, democratically elected by the group, but they were challenged by Celia and Joel Halliday who lost the vote. Now, um, Sarah Jane is putting on a pantomime, um, what we call a, a Christmas play, a fairy tale, a, a raucous musical fairy tale for children that adults also love to, to watch at Christmas too. And Celia is quite determined that Sarah Jane's pantomime isn't going to go as smoothly as Sarah Jane wants it to go. And um, it, it's fair to say things are complicated when a body turns up and um, Sarah Jane has that to deal with as well on the night of the play. So yeah, it's a fun, fast and festive read. It's, it's fairly short. You can read it in the run up to Christmas while you're searching for your presents and it will make a great stocking filler as well because it's really cute. It's really sweet. It's so lovely. It's, it's like bad. really tactile. I can't stop touching it. It's, oh my goodness, it's lovely. Um, but yeah, it's, um, it's a really fast and fun festive read um, that takes us back to the world of the appeal and if you it have read the does. appeal. Yeah. No, I loved it. Um, I mean, you can easily sit down and read this with a cup of cocoa or something stronger um, <laughs> in, in an evening. And indeed, as Janice points out, the size, it's 187 pages, um, but the size, which I really loved. Do you know, Janice, when I started the bookstore in 1989, most hardcover books were, were roughly this size or just slightly bigger. Wow. Really? And they grew to this very large, and the reason is people say, I, I'm becoming like, you know, the the memory of publishing because hardly anybody's been in it as long as I have been. <laughs> and, and I find that people don't know why some things happen. And what happened was when Barnes & Noble really took off in the 90s and bought miles of books, they said to publishers that books displayed better if they were bigger. And they insisted on that. So publishers went from the convenient I can't remember if this is 10, but anyway, a convenient eight or 10 inch size, which was really friendlier in the mm -hmm. sense that, you know, you could hold it better, you could read it better, whatever. They went up to these big 12 inch hardcovers purely for the display. Wow. It was the only reason they did it. And I'm happy to see that there's a sort of movement back um, towards the novella, the shorter story, and also towards the smaller size, which I think is user friendly. And I can say that as an older person who has arthritis and all, that holding one of those great big books is not nearly as comfortable as holding this lovely little book and, you know, like that, right? <laughs> Absolutely. That shows you the power of marketing, doesn't it? Well, yeah. it does, you know, but that was, there was the 1990s was a surge of the chain bookstores in the UK. In here, you had Waterstones and, you know, I'm trying to remember there was Smith, isn't it? W.H. Smith, yeah. W.H. Yeah, Smith yeah. and Waterstones, and we had Barnes & Noble, and there was another smaller one that um, was a branch of Barnes & Noble, I can't remember now, it's traded out. And then, of course, when the digital world came along and began to upend that, then the focus for cover art became um, JPEGs. You, you wanted to have a cover that would show very well in a JPEG, and that, I think, is part of the reason that books can be smaller again and have, you know, 
smaller scale covers and all, but as long as they're still, anyway, this is all meat for Janet. I mean, I'm sure Janice is going to write a book now in cover art. I'm just waiting. <laughs> you can yeah, I do find it fascinating. <laughs> right. So it, it's important for reasons we won't discuss that the play be Jack the Beanstalk. I mean, it, mm -hmm. it's a crucial decision by the Fairway players to make this novel work. But, you know, aside from all the other things that go on, there's a peculiar pitchiness that British people can use to put down each other that um, I don't think works as well in any other place or language. How would you describe it? Because Celia is just the exemplar of that kind of um, communication. Yeah, it's interesting. So I think we are less direct. We often say things that we don't mean, but we all, we understand it. We know what someone means when they say something and mean something else. But to an outsider, I think it's harder to pick up on. Um, but of course, everyone knows, everyone can see how bitchy Celia is being, but nobody says anything. It's, it's all very um, mannered and things are sort of hidden um, when we talk to each other. And especially in a small community like this, where things matter so much, this play and who's in it, who's directing it, whether it's a success or not, really matters to these characters. And they will do anything to achieve their ends, whether that's making the play succeed or making it fail. And in that, you get all sorts of um, turmoil of relationships um, as people's allegiances are settled. Because some people will want to be with whoever is in charge. And if that, if that leadership changes, they'll change their allegiance to be with the person in charge. And we have all of this happening together and it's pretty delicious i must say it was, it, well, it was very delicious to write these characters as they live out their passions through this play and through their relationships with each other um i hope i hope um, other audiences from around the world and in america can pick up on the subtext that we often have and that leads us to get away with some sarcasm that perhaps wouldn't happen in other um other well, types of communication i think the key the key to understanding the british put down is freezing politeness instead <laughs> of instead of being belligerent or directly insulting or ranting or whatever it is the british use freezing politeness um and if you understand that's what's happening you recognize uh, what what they're doing to you now I the good news is if you're an American they kind of give you a pass for being you know clueless um, so I have traversed British society and you know kind of gotten away with things but I have run into um, for example on the Queen Elizabeth run by Cunard which is a British owned line I once traveling in um, an upper class because there's still class divisions or were anyway on Cunard for a long time and I wanted to bring an author who was traveling in basically Sturridge um, to lunch. And I'm telling you that the dining room, the host, Metro D, would not let that happen. They were going to keep those class lines, which were honestly only really determined by money, because, you know, you could, it didn't used to be true. I mean, you had to be not only money, but classy in order to be first class, but you don't really have to do that anymore. You can just pay for it. Anyway, he was absolutely determined 
and she was not going to be allowed to eat in the dining room. But he went about it in the most glacially polite way. And eventually I went to another dining room and sort of snuck her in. Um, but I've also, I've also years ago remember riding on a red double-decker bus when I was in London. My last day, I thought I would take the tour. I might have told you this before. Did I tell you this story? No, I don't remember. Okay. So I was staying at the Barclay. And the reason I was staying at the Barclay was because it had air conditioning. It was in the summer. And London is not really well set up or wasn't back then. This was in the 80s for heat. So I was no, saying, we're not, not at all. Right. So you, in order to do that, you would traverse, you know, up and down Piccadilly and you would go by Hatchards and you would go by Fort Newman Mason and you would go by the Ritz, which was located right there. So every day I'm walking up and down or doing stuff and on. Finally, I thought to myself the day before the bus ride that I should cap off my time in London having tea at the Ritz. And the only, the only thing I thought about was whether I really wanted to spend 20 pounds, which was a lot of money in the 1980s, to have tea at the Ritz. Never occurred to me it wouldn't be welcome. Never occurred to me, you know, that whatever. I just thought it was a purely financial decision. So I went into the Ritz and, you know, Metro D or the host came up to me. Yes, madam, he said. And I said, I'd really love to come for tea tomorrow. And, you know, may I book a table? You have to say book in order to be British. And he said... Certainly, madam, you know, what time would you like? And I said, I don't remember, 4, 4.30 or whatever it is. And he wrote me down and off I went. That was the whole transaction. So the next day when I'm riding in the red double-decker bus, there was a lovely Cockney gentleman who was retired. I think he was a retired sergeant major from the army or something. And he's doing dialogue for the tourists. So we're all riding around London. And he's pointing out the sights and all. And finally, we start up Piccadilly. And he turns to everybody on the top of the bus and he said, in front of us, he said, this is the famous Ritz Hotel. And he said, they do a very posh tea there, he said, but it's never for the likes of you or me. And, you know, and I really fought with myself. Do I say to him, that's not true. I'm going to, <laughs> or, you know, or no, because it would have yeah. really been upsetting. So I didn't say anything, but I thought myself, here's what I thought that this gentleman Probably, had, I could have given him 20 pounds. He probably had 20 pounds at his disposal. And that wasn't the issue for him. The issue was not, was it going to be expensive? The issue was that he was not of a class that he thought would be accepted at the Ritz for Tea. And what he knew was that that same man who had been so nice to me, because I was American, would have frozen him to the spot he really would have in a way that, you know, is, would have been perfectly comprehensible. So my poor little cottony guy would have been miserable. He would have absolutely yeah. been having tea at the Ritz because he, he didn't he would have, have felt that he didn't belong. belong. Exactly. Feeling that you belong is so important, isn't it? And yeah. there are places that you don't really belong because well, you don't. Right. So Celia in this book reminded me of all that because she's going about not having won the election to lead the fairway players and not getting the pantomime she wants, employing in her communications exactly that kind of um, freezing politeness and passive aggressiveness that I would have met, or my little cockney guy would have met from the Metro D at the Ritz. And you know, only you could do that, Janice. I mean, there's no American who could actually write this book 
I, yeah, that's interesting. I don't know whether to um, apologise for that aspect no. or, to, or to feel quite to celebrate it because I do um, do write about it quite a lot. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's. I think Celia and Sarah Jane are two very um, interesting characters because on the surface they seem to have a lot of similarities, but it's when you when you look under the surface they don't. Sarah Jane comes across as another Celia. Underneath, she's very forward-looking, and she mm -hmm. really cares about people in a way that I don't think even the people surrounding her understand. It's only in her communications with Kevin, her husband, that it comes across what's behind her decisions and what's behind quite some quite outrageous things she does, but which which all have a a good reason. There's a good heart behind it. And so that's that's the difference between them. I I love both of those characters, and I almost feel like each of them, I, I identify with each of them. I must have a Celia and a Sarah Jane in me somewhere. Well, I mean, you're writing primarily for an English audience, even though you know Americans a big market. So of course you want to write, you know, in a way that you know will be perfectly clear to British people. And I'm just trying to bring Americans up to speak. <laughs> When they read this as to what's really going on with see I mean I think I think her emails are absolutely a delight but <laughs> anyway um so Sarah Jane wins you know and they're going to put on Jack and the Beanstalk and that means they have to resurrect some old scenery and other stuff but and everybody's kind of jacking position there's their real tribal kind of a thing you know that that goes on under here but um Tell us about the the legal people because in the appeal, you know that was that was really the point. It became um, a court a court case, and so you had to pay some attention to the the junior and the senior lawyers involved. So tell us about them because they're back too. They're back. Yeah, Femi and Charlotte. Um, they've moved on to four years later. They're both working in in separate places. And uh, Roderick Tanner, the the QC who. Um, was tutoring them before, is now retired. But he's not retired quietly. He's um, still churning over some cases in his, um, in his mind. And he sent, sent them these documents to look at, these emails, to kind of gauge their thoughts on it. He doesn't tell them a lot about what they're looking for. So that's, they talk a lot between themselves about what could be about the, what, could, what is here in these emails, what's wrong in this scenario and th but they end up having to unpick what happened before during and after that pantomime to find out get to get to the bottom of what exactly went on and I, I actually dedicate the book to the ghost of Christmas past because it's a it's a shadow of the past that um has reared its ugly head and that, well, one shadow of the past is the beanstalk itself that, that Sarah Jane secures for the stage. Mostly, I have to say, pantomimes are very um, loosely staged. They're, they're cobbled together. You could get a, a beanstalk that's a ladder covered in tinsel, you know, mostly, and the kids and the adults watching won't mind at all. But Sarah Jane wants this to be a really outstanding pantomime. So she's sourced a real beanstalk that was uh, you know, used on the West End stage in 1978. So um, it's, it's seen better days. And um, this beanstalk ends up um, being part of the plot. I can't really say a whole lot no, more no, about, no, uh, about what the plot no. is. It's a big part of the plot. Keep your eye on that beanstalk.
Yeah, it's not only a big source of the plot, but it's a big source of controversy too, whether, mm -hmm. you know, whether they should be paying for it and whether, you know, they're trying too hard to be posh instead of, you know, in the spirit of the of the put together pantomime. Um, there's a lot that goes on in a few pages. Now, I think it's also interesting that in order to um, present this book, the typesetter, people designing the book have to do a certain amount of action here. So what we get, I don't know if you can really see it all, but you know, we get an email exchange with you know normal email headings. That part's good. Then we get, I'm pretty sure that you can see in the brown, we get text, right? Back and forth. And then um, we have a handwritten right here in script document. And then we have the county police interrogation report. So, you know, when you're reading it, you do have, I mean, here's a double text page. You do, you know, um, the, 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 the medium of the message is important. And as you're reading through it, you know, you have to recognize that we have emails, we have all these different things going on, um, which reflects back to the original, the appeal, right? It does. Yeah, the appeal had all of those things. I think it makes it a nice, fast read. You can really flick through these pages and um, the, the, the information is communicated really quickly in, in WhatsApps in real life. Mm -hmm. And as they are here as well, it's a really right. brilliant method There's of communication. Right, yeah, you can see it. Right, so yeah. the WhatsApp messages are dramatically shorter than the email messages. And of course, the handwritten things look different, you know, in the script. Then, um, and you know, it's interesting, Janice, that you remind us of all the different ways that we communicate now. Yeah, I there's, there's loads, isn't there? I mean, I um, and that that doesn't really um, include social media, which we almost all of us use as well. Um, between Facebook, uh, Twitter, or X, as it is now, um, Instagram, we also have those messages too. Um, so yeah, there, there's um, there's no excuse for not staying in touch, is there? So, and we tend to stay in touch the whole of our lives. So and quite interesting. That's the you other can't thing. lose touch with anybody. No, and the other thing is that everybody expects it to be instant. So yeah. you know, it used to be that a vacation was an actual vacation. And now, you know, I mean, I've just taken one. I'm never actually on vacation anymore because, yeah. you know, people ruthlessly communicate with you. And in fact, yeah. you know, if you look at the timestamps on some of the communications in here, you will see that where people, you know, wouldn't necessarily phone you after like nine or 10 o'clock at night because that was considered rude. You know, you can text or email or WhatsApp people at, you know, two in the morning and all and the assumption either is that people have been smart enough to turn off their phones um, or or they're willing to wake up or whatever it might be. But so it's a more of a 24 hour communication span, isn't it? That's a really good point, Barbara. I never thought of that before, but yeah, I'm I'm on my phone every waking hour, one way or another. It's it's strange. And it's that, not just that you. is how we how we become as a society. We are so connected. We and yet, are. does that mean we're also disconnected because we're not meeting face to face? It's a kind of connection of disconnection. You know, I was thinking about that and talking to my younger daughter the other day. We used to talk on the phone and now she's a ruthless texter. <laughs> Just ruthless, yeah. you know, and I realized that we don't actually talk all that often anymore. I mean, we meet up, but most of the time, you know, we're, we're exchanging 
texts or the occasional email if you have, you know, a link or something longer to say. But the other good news is we met a really interesting Australian couple on a cruise of the Great Lakes recently. And thanks to, you know, phones, we can text back and forth and stay yeah. in touch or email, whereas the cost of phoning would be extremely expensive. And as they're progressing down towards Antarctica, uh, we got off in Toronto, but the ship, <laughs> they went on to Antarctica. Um, with the time changes and all, you know, it would be extremely difficult to, to talk to them. So yeah. a question then is, I think, how much of your personality can you as a communicator convey? What's your voice, basically, if you're texting? Or what's your voice if you're emailing? And what's your signature? And how much, how often do we use emojis? You know, I mean, there's a big controversy there about how rude or whatever it is, if you answer with an emoji, uh, rather yeah. than, you know, any kind, you could actually do something very interesting with emojis. You could actually write it, well, possibly write a whole book with people communicating just with emojis. I'm not sure how, how great that would be to read. No, sure I, think, be done. I, I think sprinkling them in would be great, but I think <laughs> to try to do the entire, I'm going to rein you in, Janet, let's not go to the <laughs> But I mean, but really, I find myself very often, you know, I'll, I'll get a text, you know, your order went through or something, and I just hit the thumbs up, you know, yeah. I mean, because yeah. it's so fast. Um, and so it, but the question is, you know, is my voice distinct when I'm communicating with all these people or does it all sound like everybody else? What do you think? I think we can't help but um, display our personalities through whether we're talking or whether we're writing or typing or using our phones. Something shines through of us even when we're trying to hide it, uh, if whether we're sending a short text, the shorter the text, the more we don't say and the more that we, we might be hiding under that one word, like the thumbs up. Or the, they say that younger people don't use um, the full stop, as we call the full stop, you call it the period, because they say that's rude. If you put the full stop at the end of a text, that's really rude, like you, you, you're indignant. Now, yeah. our generation might not think that, but they no. read into that particular punctuation mark a different kind of emotion. And that's, that's, that's fascinating. Yeah. Wow. No, I wouldn't have. I mean, I would feel like it was just good grammar to actually put a full stop at the end of a sentence or a comma. So, so if you're emailed by a Gen Z and they put a full stop at the end of their text, you know, they're, they're annoyed with you, apparently. You know, there are subtleties involved here that are revelatory. <laughs> I was also thinking that, you know, if you're boring, you could be boring, you know, in all this other kind of communication. I think a question may be, you know, how much, how lively can you would be, can you be when you're just typing, you know, but maybe that's where emojis play some kind of a role is that you inject a certain sense of liveliness or yeah, I think for, for me, for someone like me, who is someone who communicates primarily through writing rather than speaking, it, it's a godsend. I mean, email, I couldn't believe email when it first was invented. It felt like it was invented for me. I could suddenly say all I wanted to say. I wasn't interrupted by anybody. I didn't become shy in the middle of saying it. I didn't forget what I was talking about in the middle. I could send my whole letter that was 
perfectly punctuated and I'd worked on and, and gone back and altered and then send it. And it was quite different to how I was in real life, whereas I was quite shy, a bit tongue-tied, um, struggled to find my actual voice, but not my writing voice. Now, for people like me, I think um, written forms of communication are fabulous and that we do almost come into our own and display that liveliness you were talking about. Um, again, we can't help it because that's how we communicate. I think other people um, who are more interpersonal, they struggle slightly more, but that's not um, to say that their personalities don't come out through what they type as well. And I think it's really interesting how um, things like how we communicate with each other comes out through our text. Text in one person means we, we feel very free and um, sort of articulate whereas somebody else, we might be more tongue-tied. I think if there's a weight to the communication, that changes it. If you're speaking to a friend or a relative, that's fine. If you're speaking to a work colleague or a boss or someone where the stakes are higher, that communication may come out farther more, rather more stilted because we're thinking a lot more about what we're saying. And the more we think, the less um, of our personalities will come through what we're writing. Um, that's that's one um, way in which I try and um, differentiate some of the texts in my um, text or, or email based uh, work. Um, you know, I hope I hope people pick up on it. Um, it sounds like you have. That's that's a good thing. Absolutely. No, I love the personalities that came across in the appeal. And again, I don't know how easily one could do this in, you know, a book form. But one of the other things that um, has also enhanced commu digital communication as you can attach images. So, you know, you can send, I have, for example, a fabulous photograph of our giant saguaro cactus in our house with Christmas lights on it. And it was a perfect, you know, during the holidays, it was like, instead of signing my name, I could just attach the photo. And in the, the photo itself said, you know, look, it's Christmas and the lights are sparkling and, you know, all this other stuff. And I think um, I think the fact that you can um, enhance messaging in particular, but you can also put them into email um, with images, you say a lot. Because, I mean, you know, they say a picture is worth a thousand words. And in many cases, that's really true. Um, so maybe a challenge for you would be to find a publisher who would be happy you know, to have very little text and then just a whole set <laughs> of images. And, and I will tell you that there was a book published last year called Hidden Pictures by Jason Recolek, one of my favorite books. And one of the characters, Janice, one of the characters, entire voice during the book was a series of line drawings. Wow, that's amazing. And it was a critical clue to the decipherment of the plot, these wow. drawings, and especially the last one. And that was the whole voice of one character in the book. So... It may be that, you know, I'm steering her towards images, right? <laughs> um, but honestly, you know, that that's a possibility is um, you could have somebody communicating, especially a child, because this was a child. Yeah, um, yeah definitely. Definitely. If, if you've got a character who who struggles to type one way or another, well, like the Twyford Code, Steve, um, the main character in that can't read or write. Right. So he that's why we're reading transcriptions of his audio recordings so yeah i think there's, there's a great many opportunities to explore trickier forms of communication and trickier media 
in order to deliver character in a, a more inventive way for sure and i'm i'm going to love that image of your cactus with the christmas i'll send it to you i'd love to see it, see it. That, is, that is fabulous but i i do think what that means is that um that you can give voice to characters that would otherwise be extremely difficult you know to what if you had a person with autism that you wanted to um you know a neurodivergent character of some kind or other and maybe the only way that that character could communicate in a story would be through some kind of drawing you know if they're not particularly verbal or whatever so i mean i do i do love the fact that storytelling is so adaptable after all it was originally an oral tradition and you know people kept up with the story the people who were the storytellers with mnemonics which is why you know when you read homer you keep coming back to the wine dark sea or whatever because it was uh, a cue you know to the storyteller that that section was done and that they were going to start a new section which they had memorized um so and i i think the fact that you can you know change people's email um addresses and headings and so forth can say a lot you know, besides the actual text of the email message. I'll I'll try to find that Meg Cabot book for you, the title, and send it to you, because I thought she did this a long time ago. An amazing job um, with adding extra voice, so to speak. Uh, but there we are. So tell us about pantomime, because, you know, that's a much more British thing. We have school plays, but I don't know that we really do community or adult plays other than nativity plays in this country like you do pantomimes. Oh yeah, pantomimes, they're very, um, it's a very specific form of theatre and um, they're only staged around um, from December to I'd say mid-January, that kind of area. So they're very associated with Christmas and New Year. And they're basically um, a folk tale. I mean, common ones are Jack and the Beanstalk, Cinderella, Puss in Boots, um, Aladdin. Now, well-known tales that are performed in a, a particularly outrageous way. I mean, they have, they're famous for cross-dressing the principal boy is always played by a young woman and the pantomime dame is always played by a man and they're outrageous characters with um there's lots of snapstick there's always a custard pie fight or a fight with flour across the stage um there's usually things like a fairy godmother who flies in on on a string um it's it's a, a spectacle and when they're done in the local community by, by amateur drama groups, they're rough and ready. And even if you see them in the West End, they're often featuring celebrities, they're under-rehearsed. There's a lot of laughter between the um, people on stage and the audience, particularly if they forget their words or something goes wrong. You know, it's very fluid like that. They, and if there are children in the audience, which there always are because it's a pantomime, uh, they're often got up on stage and included in the in the. Um, performance or they're given sweets used to be given sweets and a, a one um a sort of passage in this book it talks about how the sweets are not given out at pantomimes anymore because of health and safety concerns and that is lamented by some of the older members of the uh, audience but yeah so it's a very it's fun um it's for children but there's lots of sometimes quite risque jokes for the for the adults or they're topical they talk about politicians or things happening in the news um but actually the, the roots of pantomime are very, very deep. They, they go right back to the Commedia dell'Art of um, Central Europe from way, way back. I mean, this is the Middle Ages uh, when, um, it, and it shares the same roots as clowning and sure. mime and that kind of thing. It comes from that. 
despite the fact that our the form of pantomime we have now was established largely in the Victorian era. The, um, the pantomime dame, the principal boy, the fairy tale and the kind of the the inclusiveness of the audience into the performance. Um, and that, yeah, that's pantomime now. I would, I would say to Americans, do get on YouTube and have a look at a couple of pantomimes because they're quite fun. And if you're interested in theatre and theatrical tradition, they're a real um, sort of modern day dinosaur almost. You're really looking at, at the, the history of theatre if you go to see a pantomime because it has very, very oh. deep roots. In oh, I was thinking, yeah, theory. like a Punch and Judy puppet show or something, yeah. you know, yeah. or, or uh, as yeah. you said, uh, the Harlequin and so forth yeah. from the Commedia dell'arte. But, you know, in America, if we're doing school plays more towards the holidays, they're almost always nativity plays. And, you know, mm -hmm. there's a lot of contest about who's going to be the shepherd and who's going to be the wise man and, you know, all the rest of it. Um, but they, they tend to be, to have a religious root, you know, rather than a comic or story or fairy tale route. And so, you know, I think, I mean, I've been to lots of school plays over the years. I came from a, a community north of Chicago where we, um, we had a lot of um, that kind of thing, a lot of assets. It was a wealthy community. And so we could afford to, you know, venues and doing all, but there was, um, they weren't funny. It's, it's <laughs> oh, we funny have the nativity part. plays too. The nativity plays for us are also quite separate. They're often done yeah. through schools and churches. Um, so they're quite different. The pantomime is, is far more secular and raucous right. and fun. Rather it is. Than, no, absolutely true. And I think it sort of assumes that most people already know the story. I mean, it's not oh, like absolutely. Jack and the Beanstalk is going to be a revelatory storytelling experience, you know, for people. <laughs> And, you know, maybe maybe that's part of it is that people find it comforting, you know, to to revisit um, the same tradition. You know, it, it's sort of it's sort of it feels like home, you know. Absolutely. To... That's that's a key thing, of I think, about pantomime is that we everybody already knows the story and they know it has a happy ending. And they know that the Cinderella gets together with the prince in the end. You know, it's it's um, something people go and see something they've already seen before because they know what it is and like you say it's comforting and it's like going back to going back home going back to your family and that's a huge appeal of pantomime you, you don't want to go and see a pantomime story you don't know no way i got it right plus you know maybe there's punch served or something similar so i remember going to the opera in rome when i was like 15 years old i was on a on a tour, and I didn't realize that the coffee they served in the little glass tubes at the Baths of Caracalla were mostly brandy. So, <laughs> so I, you know, no experience with alcohol really, and so you know, I drank one. I saw the entire Aida through this kind of haze, <laughs> you know? and so you know, I kind of get the get the spirit there of what's behind. So, Janice, you know, before you became um, a, a relatively recent sensational bestseller, because it's only been, I think, like four years this is going on, you were a magazine editor and a journalist and a government communications writer, none of which are supposed to be funny. So, <laughs> um, you know, what, what prompted you to step, you know, into the world of fiction and really more or less comedic fiction? I had always loved writing and loved um, the stage, the stage and the, the theatre, you know, the film and TV. That's where I started. 
I when I gave up being a, a journalist, which I loved doing for 15 years, but I burned out of it. It was and I knew I wanted to write creatively and it was sort of now or never moment. So I decided it's now it's not going to be never. It's now. Um, so I, I went towards screenwriting. I did an MA in screenwriting and took that route. And it's only really when I failed to get my TV ideas off the ground that I looked towards novel writing. And it's only when I started novel writing that I fell in love with it. And I think the comedy that you pick up on that, that very much came out in my stage writing. Oh. I, I, um, I had one comedy called Netherbard. And that was about um, three actors who were playing um, the witches in Macbeth um, and bemoaning their tiny roles. And they, during rehearsals, they accidentally cast a real spell and find themselves transported to King Lear playing the main roles of uh, the king's daughters. And they, they have to go through almost the entirety of Shakespeare's canon to get back to Macbeth. Um, so yeah, that's comedy for me was, it's almost inherent in stage because I was a member of an amateur drama group for so many years. And wow. the majority of plays we did were comedies because audiences love comedies. So I found myself in um, Whitehall farces, which are fairly from the 60s and 70s uh, here in the UK. The Whitehall Theatre ran a lot of raucous comedy plays called farces. Um, there was always uh, one a female actor who ended up in her underwear and one male actor who ended up with his trousers down holding a toilet brush and that was um the, the funny part of the play and i was in quite a few of those and so i got a great sense of what makes an audience laugh and as a performer uh which i then employed when i started writing so all my plays were funny all my plays were comedies and it so much so that when i my first film was made the retreat that's, that was a very dark, um, very um, humorless, I'd, I'd say, psychological thriller. I mean, it's a real um, dark, dark story. And my friends who'd seen all of my plays were quite astounded that you know, they thought they were going to be watching a farce. They thought they were going to be watching comedy. Um, it turned into a dark psychological thriller. So I've always had these two sides, the comedy side and then the darkness. And I think in my novels, the two come together. Um, all that yeah. I've learned in the, the dark screenwriting and the comic, comedic um, stage writing have, have come together in novel writing. I'm so glad it has because I've fallen in love with the novel and with the form of writing that it is. It's, um, it's a wonderful opportunity to explore character in depth and to explore themes in depth as well, more so than any other writing I've um, ever done. And um, I'm yeah, well, having a whale of a time. Well, I, no, I can tell that you've always had great fun doing this. It's always fun to talk to you and, and see that. I agree with you that I think you fused your, you know, your dark and your comedic side because, you know, ultimately at the heart of this, somebody, somebody dies, you know, I mean, there is an actual crime at the heart of the books. And um, I think, you know, we can't lose sight of that, um, even though, you know, while we have all the humor and the laughs, there still does need to be some kind of um, justice in some form, you know, needs to be served if otherwise the, you know, the, the death, the murder or whatever crime it might be, you know, mysteries don't have to be murder mysteries. I mean, they are, but if you go back to the golden age, you will find that, uh, Dorothy Sayers wrote about, you know, 
missing necklace. I mean, you know, there are other crimes that that can be part of mystery that don't have to focus entirely on on death. Although, you know, I think that the, the point is that murder is like the highest stakes crime, but I'm not entirely sure. I think blackmail is, an is a terribly cruel crime, for example. Um, you know, to destroy somebody's reputation um, is is a very cruel thing. Um, so I, I think it's great that, you know, you have other stuff or you can have other stuff going on besides, you know, everything being being a murder mystery or the, you know, the American cozy, which fuses comedy and the it's really murder light. You know, it's like, oh, there's a yeah. body. But, you know, that really isn't as important as, you know, the cake recipe that is flopped or being stolen yeah. or something. So, you know. Cozy crime, the cozy crime genre. Right. Well, you British have a darker cozy crime generally aspect and I've heard P.D. James described as a cozy writer for example and on her best really? day she was never anything close to that so I'm hoping that the terms are becoming more synonymous American and British because you know I mean Phyllis in no way in my view ever wrote a cozy and actually some of the golden age crimes are really quite dark even if you know we oh. tend to think of them as lighter today whatever well, um, anyway, the Christmas appeal is really fun, really Christmassy. You get to know the pantomime, the whole bit. Um, and it's an adorable size, perfect for stocking stuffers. We happen to have them in stock. We also have autographed copies coming from London for those of you who would like the British edition and um, Janice's signature. They may all be spoken for, but you can check because I think we have some that are left. Um, and I will look forward to talking to Janice in January about the Think it'll be the Alberton Angels for the U.S. edition, but we can also sneak in a conversation about the Examiner, which will have come out in Britain and which we will have ordered autographed copies of as well. So I want to thank you for um, signing at our London partner there, uh, so that we can do that, which is really very kind of you. Oh, you're welcome, Barbara. It's a pleasure. Well, and anyway, um, my apologies again to those of you are watching about screwing up the time. I will try to remember that the rest of the world does not do daylight savings time the way America does. And, um, well, it just doesn't, um, but it's hard, to, it's hard to remember. So Janice, thank you for your patience in, um, in hanging out or coming early, actually, because Janice is two o'clock in America, but <laughs> one o'clock here, I did. Well, anyway, I screwed up, so I'm really sorry. So it it's goes. just wonderful to be here, Barbara, whatever time. It's lovely. Oh, thank, thank you, you very I much for having me. To it too. Let's see if Jacob has any questions from the audience besides what the hell happened, which is <laughs> probably the biggest question that he's had to address here. Oops. Hi. Hey, yeah, we do have some questions here. Excellent. Uh, starting with Katie. Uh, what have you learned about yourself after writing the book or over the course of your writing career? Oh, wow, Katie, that's a great question. What have I learned about myself? Wow. I think I've learned that I can sustain writing one thing intensely over many, many months. Something I never had to do. Script writing is quite light. It's very collaborative. Um, you're working with other people. It's, you can write a script really quickly. With a novel, you're on your own and you're working intensely for a long, long time. And you know, before, it, it never crossed my mind that I'd be able to do that. And yet now I've, look, I've done it three, four times now. Yeah, that's what I've learned. 
Okay, great. We have another one from Katie. Um, what author inspires you and why? Wow, there's so many, so many authors. I mean, I think a classic author, Cervantes, Don Quixote is one of my favorite books of all time. That's the classic story. Uh, it really is. Um, but modern day, um, I'm reading a great book by Tina Baker at the moment. She's um, a thriller writer here in the UK. Um, she wrote Call Me Mummy, Nasty Little Cuts. I'm reading her uh, later, her next book, which is out spring next year, called uh, What We Did in the Storm. And that's a that's a dark thriller. That's in it, and that's really shaping up. Uh, so I, I love her. Um, yeah, I, I'm I can get something from most authors and most books that I read. Very rarely do I not read, do not finish a book. I'll get something out of all of them. All right, and then one more. Um, this one's a fun one. Are book reviews important to you? <laughs> um, I I do like to read them when a book first comes out. I have to confess to see what people like about them. And this is reviews, um, not necessarily in uh, mainstream media. This is on, um, you know, Goodreads, NetGalley, um, Amazon, um, where people, you know, put ordinary readers put their reviews. Um, and I, I see what they like about that particular book, what they dislike. It's very interesting. Um, I don't really, if, if I get a bad review, I, I, I quite easily dis dismiss it and put it out of my mind so it doesn't affect me. Uh, but then after a while, I stop reading the reviews because I feel I have an overview of, of what people think. Um, but yeah, I mean, reviews, reviews are great. I mean, it's great for people to discuss the books they read. Not always something that the author needs to discuss with them but it's for me it's it's interesting and it, bad reviews don't bother me i think it's important to remember that the book has already been published and mm -hmm. that negative commentary um doesn't really do anybody any good um you know sometimes people review on the basis of what they wanted the book to be and not what the book actually is and you know that's pointless well that's it for questions okay oh, right. Thank you very much for your questions. It was. Well, Janice, lovely to see you. Let me wish you a very happy holiday. I will see you in the new year. And in January, we will all be on the right time. So I can't screw <laughs> up. All right. So we will keep that in mind. Anyway, thanks very much, everybody, for joining us. And happy holidays. Thank you, everyone. Happy holidays to all of you. Goodbye. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them and your help would be appreciated, please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.